Hello, this is Dr. Shiva. Welcome to our podcast, Get Educated or Be Enslaved. Episode 605, air date May 4th, 2020. Hello, everyone. This is Dr. Shiva Ayadure. Good afternoon. It's about 1.23 p.m. here in Cambridge, um, Belmont, Massachusetts. I also have Jennifer uh, joining us from Vermont. So what we want to do today is there's a video that I did I think when was it back in September, Jen, or long time ago? Uh, I did it almost seven months yeah. ago. And I did this video because um, of my background with Cytosol, my background with systems biology. And when I looked at this entire vax, anti-vax uh, issue, I realized that you had two sides essentially not really discussing the fundamental issue of one size does not fit all medicine. And the fact that none of these vaccination programs should exist whether you believe in vaccines or not, that it should all be decentralized to the individual. And, you know, many of you know, you know, I'm an MIT PhD in biological engineering. Uh, I have four degrees from the place and my entire life has been really uh, exploring health from the Eastern side and the Western side. So my goal was really to bring a, a perspective which was much, much needed because as I've said, this entire vaccine movement, there are people who just make money off of it, who built their careers off and frankly, I haven't been doing anything to educate people. So when I looked at this, I came from a fresh standpoint as a systems biologist. And what I said was, and with my experience in systems health, with my experience with Cytosol, as many of you know, Cytosol is a technology, it's a software technology. We build mathematical models. So whether a pharma company wants to use it, whether a, a, a nutraceutical company wants to use it, whether a packaged goods company wants to use it, it's a very powerful technology. In fact, Everyone should be using it to understand toxicity, to eliminate animal testing, et cetera. Um, and I've been, and this was done uh, back in September. Uh, Jennifer saw mm -hmm. it and she, it really, and Jennifer, you may want to tell people how this presentation really helped you and, you know, your background, Jen. Yeah, my name is Jennifer Bennett. I have a son who's three years old and I had done extensive, extensive research on vaccines and vaccine safety because um, I had personal issues and I wanted to, to be a health advocate for my son. And I have to say that of all the research I did for three years, um, when I saw this presentation, it was that last little bit of information, big bit of information and understanding that really armed me to hold my ground and to know that my mother's intuition and the kind of foundational research I had done was accurate and truly understanding this whole, the risk assessment, the precision and personalized medicine, and that the one size, you know, doesn't fit all. And so it's an hour and a half, but for me, it was everything that I needed to really arm myself. So if you're in that space of wanting to understand more about your immune system and really the foundation of like the research and the lack of research, this, this is going to arm you with the resources and tools that you need. Yeah. And as, as I go through this, I share with you my journey. I talk about systems health. You will understand more also what Cytosol is. I talk about the fact that I've come from the world of, you know, big academia, uh, pharma, for example, has used my technology to, and, but they didn't fully use it because they're frankly afraid of it. But you'll understand that I, uh, come from the worlds where, uh, I know the insiders, how they think. And I also understand that the future of medicine is precision and personalized medicine, which means one size does not fit all. And the perspective you're going to get here is a very deeper perspective 
because the deep state establishment always wants to split us left and right, vax, anti-vax, pro-gun, anti-gun, pro-climate, anti-climate. And the goal is when you take a systems approach, the truth is revealed. And the truth really here is one size does not fit all. Healthcare must be uh, sent decentralized. Uh, John Kennedy, as you know, started the national vaccine program. Then his brother, Ted Kennedy, uh, even after there were injuries, didn't get rid of it. They actually created the National Vaccine Injury Program, which completely made sure big pharma and the vax and the and and the vaccine manufacturers were protected. And then Booby Bobby Kennedy comes on, and he actually wants to still have government involved. He's pro-vaccine. He he he's vaccinated all his kids. Okay, and as a scientist who understands how pharma works, who understands natural product companies. I have a much more richer and deeper perspective. And uh, from my perspective, we have a huge opportunity to really move this discourse to the truth. And the truth is that it's about liberty. It's about freedom. You as a person should decide whether you want to get vaccinated or not, whether you want to take you know, uh, supplements or not, whether you want to eat right or not. It's really up to you. It should not be top down. The government should not be involved in this. The entire national Vaccine Act of 1962 with Robbie Kennedy's uh, uncle did should just go away. It should just disappear. It should, health should come back to you. And that's what you're going to learn here. So I'm going to start this, Jen, without any ado, unless anyone has any questions here. You see any yeah, questions? No, I just, just want to highlight that you are not a vaccine manufacturer. And, you know, if you're saying that you truly don't understand this incredible technology that Dr. Shiva created, and understanding that it's a software, it's a software solution to help anyone make better products, period. Um, but, you know, as when you start to, when you understand Cytosol and what it's all about, you'll see why Big Pharma is actually very afraid of it because of the power that it can reveal, you know, on food-based products, you know, natural products. Yeah. And one of the things that I'm planning on doing, I mean, ultimately, the goal is that you have Cytosol, Jen, I think I may have shared this with you and everyone for the individual. So ultimately, the goal would be, we understand you as a person, and then we can design oops, what's appropriate for you. So let me start right now. Let me go over here. I think I have it here. And this is, again, a presentation that I did that I'm going to start right here. And here we go. Hello, everyone. This is Dr. Shiva Ayadure. I'm very much looking forward to sharing with you uh, my thoughts on vaccines. And what I really wanted to do, as you notice, the uh, title of the talk, which I'll share with you, is really beyond vax and anti-vax and beyond left and right. Uh, one of the unfortunate things that's been going on in this country is that there are forces which divide people, left and right, vax and anti-vax, whatever the issue is. And we really have to start looking at who's benefiting from this and how this process works. Um, and I hope that the vaccine uh, discourse gives us an opportunity to really start um, recognizing that there are in fact real problems and there are real solutions. And unfortunately, as we'll realize, is that the noble uh, purpose of science in many ways has been um, in many ways been compromised because um, the notion of disinterested objective third parties, which I'll talk about, has um, to, to explore science based on, you know, we, we fund a lot of tax dollars to a lot of people in, in academia. And what's happened is science in many ways has been compromised. 
and we've gone into what we call academia. And I'll talk about this. And this has resulted in an unfortunate situation that we use a methodology which is not really in favor of the future of science, uh, which is a systems-based approach, but reductionism. Reductionism is you have a very complex uh, problem and you reduce it to parts of the problem. And when you reduce things to parts of the problem, you can create narratives. Uh, and there's a, essentially a glimpse of the a larger issue. So in many ways, the vaccine a discourse that I'm gonna to talk to you about today is really about that. But I also wanna offer a solution beyond just um, talking about the problem, because I think we have a, a significant opportunity not only to address uh, the real problem with a real solution, but also to unify us uh, in what I call a personalized and precision medicine framework for advancing this discourse and discussion. And for me, um, it's been interesting when I put this out on social media, you had unfortunately people with um, uh, certain MD degrees next to them uh, trying to question my background. And uh, you know, uh, many of you may know me with previous videos, but I rarely talk about the fact that probably for you know eight to twelve hours a day, I'm a practicing scientist. Some of my friends know this. You know, I get up at four in the morning, and uh, separate from the other activities I'm involved in, I, I'm a working scientist. I've been so since I was about fourteen years old, which I'll also talk about. And uh, again, with a sense of uh, humility, I want to really share with you um, that background, but. Today, the talk is vaccines, you know, beyond vax and anti-vax, beyond left and right. And it's really to teach you how we can have a discourse because it's time that we have conversations in this country. And I'm gonna give you a framework of what is called a personalized and precision medicine framework. By the way, that framework is the actual, the future of modern medicine. A little bit about uh, my background. Uh, I have a PhD in biological engineering from MIT. Um, you know, I, in fact, I have four degrees from MIT. I went in and out of there over many years. Um, uh, uh, three other degrees in engineering and design um, and, and uh, many areas of engineering. But I've had a deep, deep interest in science and medicine. Uh, after I finished my PhD, I took about two to three years off, went to India on a Fulbright and really studied uh, how systems biology can be used to understand traditional systems of medicine. And my thesis, again, to those people who I'm openly willing to have any kind of debate, uh, any of you guys, be whether you have a Nobel Prize or whether you have an MD or whatever you have behind title, let's have a conversation because my background is in molecular systems biology. Uh, if you want to go read my thesis, at least 30, 40% of that thesis is on the immune system. Uh, and also, you know, I come from what some of you may call the establishment. You know, I publish in uh, the eminent um, top impact peer reviewed journals, be it Nature Neuroscience, Stell's Biophysical Journal, IEEE. And, uh, you know, many of the big uh, people in medicine, be it the National Institute of Health, uh, Faster Cures, um, Harvard, MIT, Tufts, major foundations like the Arthritis Foundation, invite me on not just to be some guest, but actually to deliver keynote and distinguished lectures. These are very honored um, opportunities. So I've been doing science for around 41 plus years. Uh, when I was a 14 year old kid, uh, I was working as a full-time research fellow at Rutgers Medical School, I'll share with you. Uh, I currently serve as a chairman and CEO of Cytosol, a company uh, 
which I'm very proud of. And by the way, this is no advertisement for Cytosolve, even though Cytosolve has many opportunities and uses here. And I encourage anyone to build a technology similar to this. But Cytosolve provides a very powerful way to solve many com complex problems in medicine. Uh, by the way, I work with big pharma. You know, I work with natural product companies. I work on helping major pharmaceutical companies, uh, what, you, what, we, what you would call the big establishment companies, who are really interested in science to uh, figure out new ways to innovate products that work. So typically, this course has been those people who support big pharma are typically the guys who support vaccines, and those people who are against big pharma are the guys who are against vaccines. I think you'll find in my case, I break that mold uh, ridiculously well, and unfortunate to those people who try to pigeonhole me. Uh, I'm also the founder of Systems Health. Uh, this lecture I'm delivering today is really a lecture I gave last weekend where about 60, 70 people showed up. The room was packed. And we had uh, amazing feedback. People really enjoyed it because it gave them a different framework. But I conduct regular workshops to help the community. We also have a research and education center, which I call the International Center for uh, Integrative Systems. We have many projects we do. It's a 501c3. But really, that's about helping the community understand systems thinking. So I share that with you uh, because that's my background, which I'm proud of. I don't talk a lot about it, but it's time people understood that there are people who participate in the political discourse who actually have a background. Now, one of the most important things to understand uh, at a high level is one of the wonderful things about it, uh, the American journey or America has been that as the Declaration of Independence talked about, one of the aims of uh, being an American is the pursuit of life, liberty, uh, and happiness, particularly the pursuit of happiness. And that pursuit of happiness has been a long journey that dates back many, many millennia of the human journey. And if you think about it, we as humans have um, a, a recognition of who we are and the dreams that we have. And one of the purposes in, in this context of being human is for us to pursue our dreams without any type of intervention between that. And that is the pursuit of happiness. And, and that journey has, has been a, frankly, a long struggle for humanity. Uh, at one time, um, if you look at the sort of this stair-step approach, we were slaves in bondage. We had very little freedom. And then uh, we moved from the relation to slave to slave master to a one where we got a little more freedom, a little piece of land, and we were allowed to farm it. But most of the fruits of that went to the king, and that was called the feudal system, um, the serf and the lord. And then today, we could argue we're in what's called a capitalist system, where we have incredibly more freedoms, and we can, this is a, different, a bigger argument, and we're, we're wage slaves, but we've significantly moved forward. And little by little, we as humans chip forward um, to really eliminate those barriers. Now, as a part of that process, one of the things we need to understand is that this journey has a very interesting aspect to it where our individual desire for freedom, the me, and modulating that with the collective, the group. And this is a very interesting thing. I want a certain level of freedom, but uh, we also want to make sure we don't impose that on others, nor, but we also recognize we live in community and society. And how does the community not impose on us without us recognizing that we're also, with us also recognizing a part of that. So this is really one of the deeper dilemmas in this vaccine discourse. And as a part of this, one of the important things to recognize is that there is group decision-making and where we're looking at the individual 
and the collective needs. Okay, and again, I want to give you this framework so we're really teeing this up, uh, up for having a much deeper discourse and conversation versus all this divisiveness that uh, uh, seems to take place. So there's this balance between my need um, and the collective's need. And, and you can apply this in many, many situations. Now, as a part of that, one of the most important things that comes is the notion of risk and benefit, the collective risk and the collective benefit and the individual risk and the individual benefit. And this is what we're attempting to balance. Now, I can tell you as someone who comes from a background in uh, math and science and physics, uh, engineering, uh, in engineering in particular, when you build something, when you put things out, be it a car or a rocket or a bridge, um, or even in your case, uh, when you decide to go out of the house today, or um, you make a decision. We live uh, in a world of risk. So in this thing, uh, you're looking at a way that people uh, look at risk. It's called the risk matrix. On one axis, you have the likelihood of some situation taking place. And then what are the consequences of those situations? And then you can do what's called risk assessment. And most of us don't do this in a matrix form or a mathematical form. We do this on a, uh, in a much more intuitive form. But there are um, people who do this for us, particularly in very, very uh, important areas where uh, the complexity becomes uh, much harder for us to just do it intuitively, perhaps. Um, and they take that risk matrix, as I showed you here, and they convert it into what's called a probability matrix, uh, which means that you actually are putting numbers next to these risk profiles to actually mathematically figure out uh, what this happens. And in insurance, these, these people are called actuaries, and actuaries do an amazing job at doing this quite accurately, um, especially on complex problems. And for example, the insurance industry uses this, and it's a foundation of the insurance industry. Now, separate from that, we got to understand that we're all humans, and some people, based on your who you are, you may have a proclivity for real risk versus perceived risk. You know, um, some of us, you know, I, I know there's some very comedic movies. May uh, you've probably seen may go out of the house, and they uh, people wear helmets because they're concerned something is going to hit them on the head, and they wear helmets throughout the day. One, some of us would call that a perceived risk versus an actual risk. Um, but there are actual risks. Uh, in society, and one of the interesting areas to, to give you some context is to explore, for example, auto insurance. In auto insurance, we've all agreed that in this case, we, uh, we recognize that there are collective risks. And as a part of recognizing that there are collective risks, uh, we have decided that we will uh, get insurance. But the insurance industry has become quite sophisticated um, if you are a 18-year-old with a, a big DUI drunk driving record, you're going to be at a higher risk and your insurance is going to be higher than versus a 40 or 50-year-old person who's never had any type of accident. So in that case, the risk percentages or the probability matrix is finely tuned and we collectively and individually, especially if you chose to drive a car, maybe some of you don't choose to drive a car, uh, stay out of that and that's a choice. Um, but if you do, uh, we are we have come to a point where we modulate the risk benefit and we've agreed uh, to that but remember it's personalized the risk profiles are tuned so that's um, sort of really something that we need to understand these uh, in uh, there is a whole community that does this uh, for us now I want to do a thought experiment before we jump into vaccines 
And I want you to step back and think about this situation. So think about the fact that um, we all live wherever you live in your town, your, your city or your state, you know, I'm here in Massachusetts, but let's assume someone discovers, or there's a, uh, a risk percentage that's figured out whenever there are hurricanes or storms, one out of a hundred bridges will fall uh, apart, which means fall down, um, which means there's a, some type of major uh, uh, event, the bridge cannot handle that and the bridge actually uh, collapses. So, uh, and again, we're saying that some body of evidence exists to historically show that one out of a hundred bridges uh, fall apart like this. Um, and by the way, to give you an idea, there are actually people who do this for a living. Um, uh, my degree, one of my degrees, I have a master's in mechanical engineering. I used to work in the in the area of applied mechanics, looking at bridge deck deterioration. Many years ago, I got a, a National Science Foundation grant where I was an undergraduate working for a professor where we were looking at why bridges were, uh, or the, the deterioration bridges and trying to figure them out so you didn't waste money. We would literally drive a car with a radar over these bridges and this is back in the late 80s. The multi-billion dollar industry where people try to calculate risk. But just as a thought experiment, in this case, we are looking at the fact that, or we're assuming that one out of a hundred of these bridges after a hurricane, which is a event, uh, will fall down, okay? And therefore, based on that risk, we as a community, taxpayers, um, we are asked, uh, or we decide to um, put, to, put proactively to prevent such failure, um, reinforcement and all of the bridges in our community or our town or your state, whatever, whatever uh, regional region you want to take. So this could be billions of dollars, but because of that 1% risk, we decided that we wanted to uh, reinforce those bridges and spend that money. Again, a risk assessment was done. Now imagine after that situation took place that years go by and we actually start looking at the actual amount of uh, you know, percentage of collapse rate that took place. So what this means is we find out that um, nearly two out of a hundred bridges are now falling down post hurricane. All right. So this is very interesting that the collapse rate has doubled and I'm not saying it's because of the reinforcement we did that preventative measure, which was supposed to stop bridge deck failure, uh, you know, from 1% reduced, but it's actually doubled. So just think about this. You had a risk measure of 1% and you were told to prevent that one out of 100, 1% failure. Let's spend billions of dollars and reinforce those bridges. We go do that. And unfortunately, we found out something interesting that the actual collapse rate of bridges thereafter uh, is two out of 100, 2%. So that's what we find out. Um, so as a part of that, uh, what we do is um, uh, we, we, we're not sure, uh, why it's occurring. Causality does not mean, uh, I mean, correlation does not mean causality, but we as a society, if something like this occurred, we would not be arrogant. I'm sure, uh, we would not tolerate arrogance. Um, uh, we spent a lot of money and we would want to figure out why that was occurring. And, um, and as a part of that, what we would do is we would bring together 
engineers and scientists. And what we would do is we would start to do analysis. And, you know, again, as I mentioned to you, this is a field that I know about, non-destructive testing and evaluation, finite element analysis, basically mechanics. You would, you would see uh, what was the, maybe the weight of that reinforcement structure? Did the reinforcement cause it? But anyway, you would go through a process of really trying to understand what took place. You would simply have an arrogant attitude saying, I know it all. Um, it would be detrimental to society. Not, not, not only that, society would not tolerate it. But this is a very rational approach. You would actually start doing analysis on this. Now, so I'm talking about a collective environment here. Now, let me take something and continue this thought experiment. Suppose I told you that we all lived in, in homes with moats around our homes. And, and, you know, our home is our castle. We all had bridges from our home, you know, going over the moat. And suppose the government now said, hey, look, we want you to reinforce all of your bridges given this analysis we have, all right? So the it's, it's not a collective bridge, but it's your bridge on your property, on your home. How would you feel if the government now said, we need you to reinforce? Well, first of all, you say, wait a minute. I have data that 1% of the bridges fall apart uh, before, a, uh, you know, after a hurricane. And after we did these reinforcement, I found out it's doubled. Why are you forcing me to do that? This is my property. There would be definitely some discourse, and I'm sure if you had to spend a couple hundred grand to put reinforce a bridge, you would not like it. There's risks to you, uh, your family, etc. All right. So the central point I'm making here is that all of this comes down to a very, very important area. It's a you know, there's a lot of money spent in this. You can get PhDs in this. You can get uh, you know, a doctorate in this but it's really an area that's called risk management. Risk management is really the field here. And in risk management, uh, we take very complex systems. It could be whether, uh, you know, the, the moonshot or, or, you know, going to the moon or going to Mars, uh, understanding whether we should uh, spend money on uh, supposed changes that we think are gonna happen to the climate or genetic engineering. There's many, many areas where risk management becomes important. But in the area of risk management, we have to understand that one of the groups of people that we rely on are people, if you think about it, called academics. We rely on academics. These are people in universities um, that our tax dollars go to fund. Uh, we rely on them to help us uh, manage or understand that risk because these problems have gotten far more complex uh, for the average person to understand for the average politician definitely to understand so we rely on these politicians I mean, i'm sorry we rely on academics now i want to just make a very very important point here that some of you everyone here probably knows about uh john kennedy but there was a, a speech that john kennedy gave in in the fall of 1963 which is a great speech it's probably not that well known but it was a speech that uh president kennedy gave to the National Academy of Sciences. And here's John Kennedy, a politician, uh, a statesman speaking to these scientists, and he asks them and he requests of them something very, very uh, interesting, or makes a comment that he says, look, we as politicians, we as you know, uh, leaders of countries and leaders of societies rely on you. And when he's saying rely on you, he's referring to scientists you know, thousands of scientists gathered that we rely on you to help us make decisions because we today live in a very complex world that that complexity we rely on academics to help us figure out 
many, many issues. Now he ends his talk, or in the middle of his talk, uh, he makes a very, very uh, interesting observation. Uh, and that observation is that um, we assume in this situation that the parties that we're talking about are disinterested and objective third parties, which means you scientists, we're assuming that you're being honorable and that you're disinterested and objective third parties. This is a very, very important point that Kennedy makes uh, because the assumption of outsourcing our decision-making on these very complex issues to academics is that they are disinterested and objective third parties. And that's another important element of this discussion. We've talked about risk, the importance of you know risk uh, is a very important number that we need to calculate in making decisions that we do it implicitly or explicitly but we have outsourced that risk management, very complex problems, be it for vaccine safety, be it for climate change, be it for genetic engineering, to groups of people about academics. So the issues, are they disinterested and objective third parties? One of the things I'd like to uh, posit here is the following, um, is that some of you may be aware there was a amendment around the late 60s, early 70s, which got pushed through called the Mansfield Amendment. The Mansfield Amendment was quite interesting because up until the 70s, there are a number of very astute uh, scientists and uh, people, uh, people in the history of science who argue that it was after the Mansfield Amendment did we see a serious degradation in the quality of science and the rise of business and academia versus science. And what the Mansfield Amendment did was it really changed the budget of science. Um, up until the Mansfield Amendment, if you think about the military budget is quite massive, a small piece of that military budget, which by the way was a lot, but it was a small fraction of the large military budget was given to basic science, which means uh, you could give away, money was given to people at uh, Princeton Advanced Institute or uh, Bell Labs. You had these very smart people who weren't under the pressure of having to get a grant all the time, and they did some amazing basic science. But again, it was a small piece of this large military budget. The military didn't really care. Um, it was sort of hidden away, but it was still a significant amount. Now, after or during Vietnam, during that era, 68 to 70, um, the Mansfield Amendment essentially said that such research um, could only be done if it was for weaponry. All right. So that little piece of this large military budget moved over to institutions like the National Science Foundation, which, if you talk to anyone, are highly, highly political organizations, which in many ways are not really that disinterested and there's a lot of non-objectivity there. So when that money moved over there um, is when you started having a significant change in academia, the same change that, that President Eisenhower had foretold in the 60s where he started to see this happen, what he called the military industrial complex and what Senator William Fulbright talked about the military industrial academic complex, which means a collusion of big military, big academia and big corporations basically working together not to be, as Kennedy had observed, one, a disinterest in objective third parties. So this really led to a degradation of science. And I can tell you what this means is that the professors, uh, you know, in, in one generation were really wanting to do great science. And the professors, essentially, you could, if you look at 1970s, were more interested in getting tenure, getting publications done, uh, ma maintaining their existence. Um, these were called academics, and I make that distinction
between scientists and academic is about getting grants, getting grants and getting grants um, and getting tenure so they can have a job for life versus a scientist who's very curious, the disinterested objective third party. And I've spent a lot of time on that, but it's important to understand this distinct distinction. So what does this have to do with vaccines? Because in the discussion of vaccines, we need to understand that there's this background of risk and this background of how this, the risk assessment, if anything is done and how it's being done, who is really employed in that. Um, the other context I want you to talk, we need to have a discussion about vaccines, is we live in an extraordinary times right now where medicine has realized that we must, or real healthcare, uh, one size doesn't fit all. We need to move to what's called personalized and precision medicine. This is really important to understand because what, what this is saying is that the old model of medicine, you've created one drug for everyone, doesn't fit. And, and I'll go deeper into this, but this is something I want you to take away, the notion of personalized and precision medicine. In fact, major companies, uh, you know, be it General Electric's medical group, all of these guys are recognizing that where they want to move to is the aspect of, you know, uh, the right drug for the right person at the right time. It's no longer one size fits all. That's the old model. And the real aspect of this in a simpler way is the right medicine for the right person at the right time. So it's a big takeaway here. This is what's happening in modern medicine. And it really uh, started around uh, 2003 with the development of systems biology. Um, systems biology is an area of research I've been involved in for many, many decades. Uh, the modern version plus uh, a, a not so modern version, but it's really the goal of finding the right medicine for the right person at the right time. It recognizes that you are a unique person, the diet that you want, the medicines that you want, are not the medicines that may be right for me. Uh, in fact, for the same type of uh, apparent symptom or disease. So this is one of the most powerful things that's going on right now. In fact, uh, I'm in Cambridge, Massachusetts, and the center of the biotech hub, and this is, this is where the future of science is. And in this context, what I want to share with you is that, um, I, to me, this is a very, very deeply personal issue because my entire scientific um, career, my journey, my motivation has come from this deep interest in personalized medicine. Um, some of you may know this, but just to review, you know, I grew up in India, uh, in Bombay, which is a highly, highly eclectic uh, a city with lots of different people, lots of different languages, etc. But I also grew up in an India uh, which wasn't so eclectic, you know, where you have multiple generations in one little uh, city. But I also grew up in a uh, small village, at least a third of my time, in a deep South Indian village, no electricity, no light, you know, uh, running water, uh, etc. And in that, and these are some of the scenes of that village. And my grandmother in that village was a, a, a village farmer. She worked 15 to 16 hour days in the field as a subsistence farmer. But on weekends, um, she was a village healer. Uh, this is a picture of her in her Sunday best. By the way, in that village, there had been someone who was like a, a witch doctor at one point, And he essentially used a lot of fear and uncertainty and doubt to try to make people do all sorts of uh, things which really didn't heal them. My grandmother um, was trained in India's traditional system of medicine where she could observe someone's face and based on observing their face, she could figure out what was the 
their particular state of body. Now, in the Indian system of medicine, I don't have time to go over this, but um, you could take one of our other courses in systems health, but there's a whole system of um, medicine called Ayurveda and Siddha where uh, there's a whole language to it you could understand. But the essence of it was you are a unique individual. You have a particular body state. You have a particular prakriti uh, homeostasis. I am different. And then the diagnosis method, what my grandmother used was a system of understanding the face, but there were many other diagnosis methods that were used, but it was a system of medicine. You know, Western medicine, by the way, uh, is not the only system of medicine. There have been thousands uh, of years of other systems of medicine, and we need to also appreciate that. And so um, I grew up around this, my grandmother being able to do this, and she empirically, I saw her helped a lot of people uh, on weekends. The, the other aspect I grew up in was in India, which had a caste system. We were considered untouchables. Um, it was a hierarchical system where there were people on top, and uh, we were supposed to always listen to their, um, you know, uh, saintly advice, and everyone else was sort of dumb and stupid and relegated to other work. So this was one of the reasons that motivated my dear parents to leave India and to come to the United States. And me, when I came here as a young kid, I was very motivated in medicine, uh, wanting to understand how my grandmother who had no degrees, uh, you know, uh, and tattoos all over her arms, how this incredible woman was able to heal people. So I had a very interesting background, somewhat of a, a interest in politics and society, but also a deep interest in medicine. So my parents came here, I, I was really driven by both. And by the time I was 14, I had finished all my uh, mathematics courses and my high school by the ninth grade had nothing uh, really to offer me. And my mother saw this very interesting ad in the local newspaper, uh, a friend of hers gave in New York, and it said that NYU was gonna select 40 high school students, uh, the opportunity to go learn computer programming with the, with the top minds at the Corrin Institute of Mathematical Sciences. And I was fortunate to be one of those students. So um, my mom would drop me off at the train station around five or 6 a.m. and I would take the train into New York uh, and to go to NYU, which was like an 8 a.m. to 8 p.m. program, very intensive program. And I learned um, computer science. And when I finished that program, I had a few more uh, classes uh, to do in high school. And this was, by the way, the Corrin Institute of Mathematical Science. When I finished that, I was very fortunate. And I got, a, uh, as this 14-year-old kid, a full-time job um, uh, at uh, what is now known as Rutgers Medical School in Newark, New Jersey. And in that medical school, I was given a opportunity initially to start doing medical research and I was uh, excited. Um, so I was a full-time research fellow applying my skills in computing and computer programming uh, and the project was babies die in their sleep and could I use computers to look at baby sleep patterns and, and uh, this hospital had access to quite a bit of that data. Could we look at those sleep patterns and predict the onset of what was called an apnea? So I spent quite a bit of time uh, doing this. And in fact, I ended up writing a research paper um, before I came to MIT. While I was also there, I was introduced to another problem. I learned how to build large-scale computer systems. As many of you may know, in those days, in organizations like a large medical school, this is 1978, the way that people communicated was through the inner office mail system or secretary, the inbox, the outbox, she had folders, she had the, uh, and she would write this thing called a memo. And the memo, um, 
was the modus operandi for communication. You would write a memo, sometimes you'd add a carbon paper, uh, line carbon copy, that's where it comes from, and you would put these memos in these things called a, a uh, inner office uh, mail envelope. And that inner office mail envelope was what was used um, to deliver these messages. It was tied up together, and you would send these messages uh, out to people. And as a part of this process, the inner office uh, mail system, uh, 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 it was really the uh, Ethernet before Ethernet. You can see these pipes. It was put in these pneumatic tubes. And I was asked to convert this system at a time when the people in the military industrial complex, by the way, who did not invent email, they were doing simple text messaging, thought it was impossible to do this. I was asked to convert this entire system to the electronic form. And I called this system email because the operating system in those days in this in that medical school only allowed five characters. And I ended up um, winning many awards for this, but it was a full-blown email system. And when I first came to MIT, uh, the president of MIT uh, informed me, hey, you know, the Supreme Court does not allow you to patent software, but the copyright rules had changed that you could copyright. And that was the only way to protect software inventions. And I applied for this as a 17-year-old kid. On August 30th, 1982, I was given the first copyright for email. So I wrote the code, uh, capturing all those features, called it email, and had the first copyright. So any of you who want to question at all, you know, who invented email, let's take it on. We'll have a debate on this. But it was a 14-year-old research fellow at a medical science institution who created email. Email was not done by the military. It was done by a 14-year-old kid. And if you have problems with that, we can talk about it. But the facts are black and white. In fact, I've won um, we won a, one major lawsuit against uh, a, an organization which attacked me on this, and more recently, we also settled a major lawsuit with someone else who questioned this. But the bottom line I shared this with you was that um, I learned as a kid how to build not only email, but large-scale systems. Remember, email was a system. It's not simple text messaging. I created email the system. It's black and white. In fact, uh, several years ago, this went finally into the Smithsonian after Time Magazine wrote this article called The Man Who Invented Email. Um, but this was done before I came to MIT. Um, so let's talk about MIT and health and academia and how this fits in now. The background I shared with you is that I come to this from a deep interest in medicine, an understanding of risk, a love of precision medicine, a love of um, really wanting to integrate Eastern and Western systems of thought, but really an understanding of the right medicine for the right person at the right time and the body is a system. When I came to MIT in 1980, I was, because of my interest in medicine, I was a little bit disappointed because I found out that uh, most of the system of medicine we have treats the body as parts. We don't treat the body as a whole. And because of that, um, uh, we have a dysfunctional approach to approach the, the body. We treat it as parts. And in the area of drug development or vaccine development or pharmaceutical development, here is how this works. In many ways, this is what's been moving forward for the last many years, but it's fundamentally a process where you start with a new compound um, and, you know, someone discovers this new compound. Then they test it in a test tube. You know, let's say you're trying to test cancer. You have a bunch of cancer cells. You throw it in. And if you think it works there, you get funding for that. Then you move into a, a process where you then test it, um, uh, you test it um, in animals. So that first three boxes 
in a new compound in mature and in vivo typically takes around five to six years. It's called preclinical. If you make it through that process, then you go get funding from the FDA. And as a part of getting that funding, um, I'm not funding allowance from the FDA to see if you can go test that on humans, initially small sets of humans, phase one, and then you go test it on large groups of humans, which is called, you know, higher levels, phase two and phase three. So this is the process of drug development. Now, if you notice, it's a very linear process. You go from one point to another, very expensive, around one to $5 billion, but it's for a single compound. It, it, it wasn't really designed for handling combinations. This is why, you know, today, 82 year old people take about 12 different drugs and we don't know what the drug drug interactions called DDI. We're giving lots of vaccines to kids, you know, 60, 70 vaccines in, in a short period of time. In fact, one vaccine is multiple vaccines. Um, the, that drug development model, you know, if it tested even one went through this process, but it has never tested these combinations. So it's non-personalized and furthermore, it doesn't take into personalization, it's imprecise. But this is what's called the um, uh, current drug development process. The other thing you need to understand is this drug development process is highly, highly uh, dysfunctional because as an engineer, um, this would be like 100 years ago where you had a design. Imagine just throwing a pilot in the plane and if he crashed, you said, gee whiz. And if he succeeded, then you try to explain why. So in many ways, it's backwards. Um, and in fact, someone just commented, vaccines don't even go through the same testing process as drugs. Thank you very much. That's life-lighted. Said, just said that. It's true. Um, vaccines go through less even of a rigorous process in that model. Um, but the reason this occurs is we have a fundamental problem in academic research. Because if you look at the elephant as some disease, right, or some infection, viral pathogenic infection process, um, th there's an old story of the blind men who were brought in to touch the elephant. And they each touch the parts and they have their own views. And if they, by the way, if they were ever to work together, you'd end up with an elephant, which looked nothing like the elephant because they're specialized. They don't communicate. They don't integrate. It's non-holistic. So fundamentally, what you have here is a process where um, the entire basis of academic research is based on uh, fundamentally just looking at the parts, at the components. And by the way, a lot of people don't know this. All of these very... Uh, enlightened academics, quote unquote, enlightened academics. He's very arrogant MDs on Twitter who, and by the way, you can come on and debate me. I, I put out a $10 million challenge. Um, uh, do not want to accept the fact that they work in a highly reductionist way. There are many ways their research model is you have this big thing called some disease and you're checking out the parts. And if they ever work together, they would come up with something like this, which doesn't matter the disease at all. The good news is starting in 2003, there was a significant move to move away from this uh, concept. And why? Because um, the same reductionist process of touching the parts started to fail big time. And let me explain this. About, uh, in early 1993, we started the Human Genome Project. And the Genome Project was really about um, uh, wanting to map the human genome. Now, in the early 90s, we knew a worm had around 18 to 20,000 genes. And the assumption was that we are so much more complex that we must at least have at least, you know, by the way, the, the numbers were much higher, a million to half a million genes. But uh, the issue was at that point, not the issue, the decision was made that we have about 
you know, 100,000 genes. And based on that, we started the Human Genome Project. Now, the irony of the Genome Project is, as you see when it ends, 10 years later, the numbers, the estimates keep going down and down and down. It turns out we only have about 18 to 20,000 genes. So the irony of the Genome Project is we only have about 18 to 20,000 genes, So and so does a worm. So this entire big development flipped biology on its head, and it was a big awakening to a lot of the arrogant researchers who recognize, oh, it's not just the genes. We have to move beyond the genome. If we want to understand the whole human being, as this uh, diagram shows, we have to move beyond the genome to understand, if we want to understand organs, it's the genes, the proteins, it's a much more complex problem. And again, to anyone who wants to uh, have a debate, I'm open to it because my expertise is this field of systems biology. In 2003, when I came back to MIT, one of the big developments was because of the need for a whole approach, people realized we need to go outside of the genes, outside of the nucleus, and the idea was could you mathematically use computers like we use computers to reduce risk when we build an airplane, we do it on the computer, in order to reduce risk, save time and money, could you use the computer to model diseases? Could you use the computer to model complex biological functions at the cellular level? And this was seen as, frankly, an impossible problem because if you think about the cell or a disease of many, many different chemical reactions taking place, um, let's assume they're documented in the literature. You'd have to grab all those chemical reactions. Some of them look like these little ball and stick models. Um, if you've studied biochemistry, these around 2003 are starting to become models. So if you wanted to model something like cancer, if you wanted to model something like the immune system, you would have to go get all those molecular mechanisms, connect them together, and put them together. This was seen as an imp impossible problem, especially if you needed to do it in one big lump like this. The approach I took was a very different approach in order to do this kind of complexity. Um, as someone who's trained in engineering, someone who loves medicine, and, and took a very different engineering systems approach, where I said, look, let's look at these complex processes, not as just one big lump, but if you take a, a complex system, let's assume it has many different pathways, many different models, all of which people throughout the world are working on, and I would create a technology, which I call Cytosolve, um, to put these together, and this is in 2003 to seven. I did this work, and I created a new technology which could model large-scale molecular mechanisms. So just like email was the system which interconnected all the different pieces of the office system, communication system, Cytosol was a way to provide an infrastructure to interconnect multiple molecular pathway models. We published this. It, by the way, it takes a lot to publish stuff. you got to go through peer review. It took us several, several years to get this published because of the nature of this approach that we took. And, and, um, and then we went through a process of validating this. But one of the critical things we recognized was that what we had created was a new technology platform to support precision medicine, to help lower risk, to help really um, advance medicine in a way because what we could do here was we could reduce the risk by using the computer to figure out all the possible situations long before we went to the wet lab, long before we killed animals, and God forbid, long before we killed humans. And this is, by the way, where medicine is moving, to lower risk by using computing, using advanced tools. So I talk about this because you're looking at someone who's a practitioner about this. And again, I encourage anyone out there once have a real discussion to let go of their, you know, um, their arrogance 
And let's talk about this in the context of modern medicine. Now, one of the important things is um, anyone also knows in the engineering fields, and I'm sure most of you know that we build airplanes today in this way, right? We do not, you know, uh, simply, um, uh, we know we don't simply throw a pilot in a plane anymore. We don't ask people to go in a plane and say, believe me, we actually build everything using the computer. We use the computer to model all the mechanistic analysis or the designs. Then we do some wind tunnel testing, and then hopefully you don't kill too many pilots. But this is the way that airplanes are done, and the technology that I've created, um, and again, this is not a plug for Cytosoft. Other people have other technologies great, but this is what I, I'm an expert at and know this well. But this is the technology framework that we now have or like this to really understand um, how to do you know, risk analysis using this kind of approach. And by the way, um, uh, this technology now, we work with 40 different institutions. We've taken on many different problems. We call it a collaboratory. We mine the literature. We work with research communities from big pharma to big institutions, big foundations. Again, um, uh, I work with large companies. It's not like I, I'm, uh, you know, someone I think went on Wikipedia and said I'm an anti-vaxxer or something. This is just nonsense. You know, I believe in science, not believe in science. I'm a practitioner of science. Bernie Sanders believes in science. Um, so what we have here is a, a very powerful approach. And we also have... Uh, a system that we've created. And by the way, just to give you an idea, as I mentioned, we work with universities, pharma companies, biotechs, foundations, a lot of different people. And this technology is really be being used in precision and, and personalized medicine in a variety of areas. We've been amazed at how the adoption has been across the world. Uh, this technology, for example, we're using it long before uh, to really understand, let's say, how Alzheimer's and ALS take place. Here's, for example, the blood-brain barrier. I'm not going to bore you too much but uh you know it's it's come to the conclusion that most diseases of the brain occur because of destruction to aspects of the blood brain barrier represented by this little thing here called the parasites that you can see and these parasites um, um uh when they uh, when they get destroyed um they cause all sorts of diseases so our research basically was used to look at all the research work, not just looking at one piece of research work, understand all the molecular understanding in what's called the endothelial, in the parasites, which is an adjoining structure, and in the astrocytes. The reason I'm sharing this with you is this technology can take a holistic approach to understanding at the anatomical level, at this level here. It can go to understand at the second level, the communication. But what we discovered was many of these diseases are not individual diseases. They're dysfunctions in common pathways. But more importantly, you know, this was published in major peer-reviewed journals. Again, to those people who just want to be arrogant and name-calling, you know, we can look at what publications I've done and what you've done, and I can honor you. But I, I, I you know, the only thing is we have to have respect here in this discourse. Um, here's another example. Again, I've worked with major institutions like MIT, Harvard, and Brigham to really understand how nitric oxide, for example, when it flows through arteries, when you exercise, nitric oxide flows, you get vasodilation. Instead of, uh, you know, this is a very complex phenomenon. One of our research tested this, actually did the in vitro study between Harvard and MIT. But when you look at the literature, there are, like blind men, many, many different reasons that individual researchers have found why nitric oxide happens, all these mechanisms. With our technology, we're able to put these put these uh, 
pathways together, which means combine everything versus, you know, not just be the blind man looking at the elephant and able to mathematically model, let's say in this case, the release of nitric oxide. Now, before we did this work, the naysayers, the arrogant folks were saying, oh, you can't model this, it's too complicated. What I want to show you here is this is quite impressive. That is the release of messenger RNA, ENOS concentration. And those orange lines are the actual wet lab results. So let me tell you what I'm talking about here. That's the wet lab, uh, the orange, and the black line is the actual model. Behind that model is all those chemical reactions, which we haven't made up. They're coming from a lot of scientific work. And same thing here. And by the way, this was published in one of the most um, eminent journals, again, in the world. I, was, I highlight my name uh, just to let you know I was proud to be part of this with many other researchers uh, across um, MIT and Harvard. Um, now, in uh, another area, uh, and this comes to vaccines because we have to understand we're giving combinations of vaccines, not just one vaccine. We give combinations of drugs to elderly people. Um, this paper was talking about the need for combination therapy to solve cancer, multi uh, or what are called cocktails. One drug can cause a lot of toxicity, but it magic giving lower doses of a lot of drugs. And what was uh, very exciting was, I don't know any of the authors, no inside job of that paper. Again, it was published in Nature Biotechnology, one of the biggest journals in the world. My thesis work was the only one cited as having the proven technology to do combination therapy analysis using the computer. In fact, when this came out, we actually raised a little bit of money and we wanted to see if we could take on pancreatic cancer. We all, we modeled the molecular pathways of how cells die in cancer. You want cells to die that don't and how cells uh, metastasize. We used this on a computer. Then we went through combinations, millions of combinations of two drug generic combinations. And we were used this to see if, if in a record period of less than one year, could we discover a combination therapy that could do better than the combination, um, uh, the gold standard called gemcitabine. And we were very fortunate. We found a combination and we submitted it to the FDA for allowance. Again, using the computer, our results. And the FDA actually in the middle of this contacted us and they said, you know, we normally don't make outbound calls, but we're so impressed by your approach, we consider this a future for the 23rd century. The good news is this uh, uh, was allowed by the FDA to go to clinical trials. We then went to MD Anderson, one of the biggest research centers, and we built a uh, collaboration with them, which we're in the midst of, to see uh, how we could use our technology to really find combination therapies for cancer. And by the way, going back to the Indian model in India, uh, you know, people like my grandmother or the healers would combine uh, drugs. So if you had diabetes and your friend had diabetes and your friend's friend had diabetes, not everyone got the exact same drug. It was personalized medicine, the right medicine for the right person at the right time. You know, by way of example, about 15 or 20 years ago, uh, you know, if you take Asia, China, India, all those countries there, it was discovered that Indians get one third less liver cancer than the other, you know, billion people there. And, and they, epidemiologically, which means public health, believed, again, it was a correlation, believed that it was because of turmeric. Turmeric, by the way, is a, um, the yellow herb called, which is in curry, and curry powder, um, and curry powder, um, uh, Indians consume a lot of that. The active ingredient in, in, in turmeric is curcumin. So what we did with this technology, just to show you sort of a fun example, we took, we took uh, the, the, 
the research that's already been done in the wet lab research, uh, these are people who worked and again with their little silos. And what you're seeing is we're looking at curcumin, which is the active ingredient in turmeric, all the places that turmeric interacts to reduce inflammation. So by the way, that outer circle is a cell wall, the inner circle is a nuclear wall. None of this we're making up, but we were able to aggregate this, uh, put it on the computer model it so we could actually see how much curcumin is needed to lower inflammation. Similarly, we did the same thing for resveratrol. So this would be, uh, you know, if you, if you look at red wine, uh, it, uh, resveratrol is the active ingredient in red wine. And so we did the same thing. If you go to Whole Foods, for example, you'll find supplements where they do combination therapies. But if you ask these people, how did you come up with that? There'll be a lot of hand waving. With this technology, we're able to really look at the combinations. Um, in this case, for efficacy, can it help? So you notice in the first row here, I'm looking at, and I'll sort of zoom in on this, we're looking at the far right column is a marker for inflammation. The lower the number, the better, which means you have less inflammation, the higher the number you have inflammation. So I'm not giving any curcumin and any resveratrol, any C, high inflammation. I only give curcumin, you notice it goes down from 0.15 to 0.05. I only give resveratrol, again, a positive response, 0.15 to 0.06. But look what happens when I actually um, uh, give just, uh, uh, I mean, combine curcumin and resveratrol, but lower the dosage, less curcumin by 40%, less resveratrol, and voila, you see it go down by another 200% to 0.03. The reason I'm telling you this is that you don't have to give a combination of a, a high dosage of a lot of things. You can reduce the dosage, but they have a positive effect. This is also true in the inverse. If you give a lot of little, if you give uh, uh, many things but low dosages of them, it can also have a profound toxic effect. So think about the number of vaccines that are given together for young infants. What does that mean? Do we even have the risk models? Think about uh, what happens for elderly people when they're taking 10 or 12 drugs, 82-year-old people. We don't even know the drug-drug interaction. In fact, you can't test that in a clinical study because you'd have to uh, unfortunately kill so many animals, millions of animals to look at all the combinations. This is why the computer is important. And so the future of risk analysis is um, computing, is systems biology. Now, when it comes to vaccines, um, we need to understand that vaccines, just like the concept of systems biology, uh, just like the concept of you know, right medicine for the right time is not something just Western medicine or a bunch of guys at MIT and Harvard have figured out. Uh, the concept of systems biology goes to people like my, my grandmother, which she used to practice right medicine for the right person, right time. In fact, it goes back thousands of years. Similarly, when we look at vaccines, this was not something just figured out by, you know, um, the modern uh, medicine men of the West. But for centuries, uh, thousands of years ago, the Chinese, for example, when it came to smallpox, um, they would take the scab uh, or the actual pus, dry it, and put you know put it into people's nose. In um, other places like India and China, for example, um, there was a, a, a rich history of people uh, using very. This was called variolation, where they would literally make an incision on the forearm, take the pus, and put it there as another way of inoculation. So variolation was a way of inoculating people, Indians, uh, Africans, uh, Chinese did this. In fact, there's papers you could study about it, how this technique moved from uh, the East over to the West. Um, 
And so, uh, and, and this was the er, you know early forms of inoculation. And remember, they used the whole substance. Um, there's a great story of a uh, a slave who brought this from Africa, in fact, into Boston, into New England, helped save many, many lives. Uh, this was before the development of modern vaccines. In fact, General Washington uh, concerned that the British were going to uh, unleash smallpox on the on the American troops. Actually, inoculated nearly forty thousand of the soldiers using this variolation technique. Um, this was a basis of Edward Jenner uh, developing the early, uh, you know, cowpox, you know, slash smallpox vaccine. Point is, uh, this approach had been done thousands of years ago. Now, when we look at the immune system, um, quick lesson uh, that you need to think about is that our immune system um, really has two major subsystems into it. It has what's called the innate immune system and the adaptive. Again, I'm not here to overwhelm you, but it has the innate and the adaptive immune system. The innate adaptive system is, so if you get exposed to a virus or bacteria or pathogen, the first system that goes hits, it's like, imagine like a barrage of soldiers who just start shooting everywhere. It's nonspecific. Its goal is to be the first line of defense. And this is, that first line of defense has a significant effect on um, uh, your body in the sense you get fever, you may get rashes, chills. This is the first phase of immunity uh, that you're, you're the first phase of the immune system trying to protect itself. And this immune system occurs um, through a variety of areas um, that is very centrally important to, to you. And as you can see here, this innate immune system involves your skin, your cough reflex, your tears, your mucosal area, your stomach acids, and uh, biologically involves various cell types, monocytes, macrophages, neutrophils, NK cells, dendritic cells. But this is the early stage immune system just wanting to take care of that, okay, virus. Now, the reality is that some things cannot be fought off by the early stage immune system. So your body also has an adaptive immune system. This And this typically takes a longer period to kick in, but it's very specific to that virus or that pathogen. But more importantly, the adaptive immune system learns once it gets exposed, it remembers that next time it gets exposed, it fights back harder. And the next time it gets even, even tougher. So you can think about it in summary, the innate immune system is, is a, you know, if you look at the second column here, it's primitive, uh, its speed is immediate, its regulation is on or off, its potency, is not as strong, it's lower, it's kinetics, which means the speed of action is fast within hour to days, it's amplification, it doesn't amplify itself. Um, it's uh, short, the memory, um, uh, you know, it doesn't have memory, it's activity is always present and its specificity is unspecific. Versus the adaptive immune system uses T cells and B cells, it's very specific, it's approximately, you know, it kicks in after around three days, and it amplifies itself. Its potency is very high. So initially it's slow, but then it's it, it's very powerful. Its duration is long, its memory's there. It remains silent initially, um, and then it kicks in. So we have the innate immune system, which is a bunch of soldiers, which you know is gonna attack, and you have like Navy SEALs, we're very specific, all right? Now, let's talk about, let's get a little more specific now. When we look at something like measles, you know, um, uh, when you first get measles and, you know, I remember in India getting this when I was a kid, um, 
the initial reaction for majority of people, a broad majority of people, is fevers, chills, and rash. This is why we get it, right? In 1963, you know, there was a decision, a motivation for the measles vaccine. Why was there a decision? Again, given all the background that I gave you, you're in a very, very good position to now start appreciating this. You understand at least broadly what risk assessment is. You broadly understand systems biology and precision medicine. I've given a good background. And we'll also talk about the notion of academia disinterested, the need for disinterested and objective uh, third parties. But when we look at it here, the motivation for the measles vaccine was because um, a percentage of people, very much like a percentage of the bridges that were breaking down after the hurricane, in that case, we said 1%, uh, we're getting subacute sclerosing pan encephalitis. And you can, you can go look this up on PubMed, SSPE. It's always in the discussion of the risk analysis for the measles vaccine. Um, there are various numbers. If you go to CDC, the early numbers on this were uh, 61 out of a million or one out of 100,000, but about 0.001% of people were getting SSPE uh, without, you know, from, from measles infection, which could affect someone either uh, you know, a uh, year after they got the uh, measles infection or 20 years. And because of that risk, again, here's the risk. Someone considered that risk to be too great, the one out of 100,000. Just like in the bridge example, we consider the one out of 100 to be uh, too great. But one out of 100,000, um, the decision was made um, that 0.001% risk was too great to um, therefore create a vaccine for that. Um, and the, that was a justification to reduce, reduce that perceived risk for the collective, that 99% of the collective were not, even though 99% of the collective were not getting SSPE, that in order to protect that 0.001%, which was because of the neuroinflammation, SSPE, that's where the measles vaccine was the, uh, initiated. So you have to understand there was a risk assessment made. Now, what's interesting to understand is, um, after, um, and by the way, I just want to be up to date because some people have said, oh, that risk, that number is too low. So if you look at recent papers, which I've gone and studied, the recent risk of neuroinflammation has been even gone up. And um, let's be fair, if you want to believe those papers between 2013 and 2018, uh, people have said it's one out of uh, 1,770. These are some of the German studies, which means the risk is 0.056%. Okay, which means those people who did not get inoculated. Now, here's where it gets interesting, and, and I think the bridge analogy will help here. Post-vaccination, post-vaccination, um, what was found was there were kids who were getting neuroinflammation, very much like um, the measles, when measles hit them, right? That small group, the 0.01% or 0.056%. And this was within the area of autism spectrum disorder, ASD, uh, denoted by HMGB1, which is an inflammatory marker. And this was about one out of 88. So these are people, you know, post the vaccination phenomenon, one out of 88 people were getting this, and which is 1.136%. So um, before the measles vaccine, 0.001%, or if you want to use the latest number, 0.056% without vaccination. But now you're getting people um, with neuroinflammation post vaccination. And what we start noticing here, again, let's take a little breather here. Um, uh, what you see here is if we go back to the bridge, remember we said 
in the bridge case, without reinforcement, 1% of the bridges uh, after a hurricane were falling apart. Now, after reinforcement with hurricanes, it's 2%. This is sort of similar now to what we're dealing with here because in this analogy or in this reality, without vaccinations, we were looking at the risk of 0.056% to 0.001%. And now with vaccinations, um, actually that number is wrong because I copied the slide. Let me correct it right here and now. This number is actually a little bit um, higher here. Let me go right here and fix it right here. It's actually um, 1.136%, 1, 1. okay? There we go. That feels better. That's a correct number. Um, so what we see here without vaccinations, 0 0.05 to 0.01%, but suddenly with vaccinations, we're seeing this now. Am I, so everyone, some of the arrogant people listening may say, oh, you're trying to say uh, correlation means causality. That's not what I'm trying to say. I'm, what I'm trying to say is precisely I'm agreeing with them correlation doesn't mean causation. That, but what we are seeing is a 200 times to a 1,000 times increase in brain inflammation. Again, correlation does not mean causation. But science would demand, the scientific method would demand that we investigate it if there is a causal relationship. This is the issue. We, we, we did it in the bridge case. We would do it in any other case. And this is what we should be investigating. And in order to do this, you must apply the scientific method. Uh, the scientific method is you have a hypothesis, you do an experiment, you collect the data, you mine the data, you model the data, and you reiterate. You see if you can replicate it, if you see something significant here. And that's what we do in the scientific method. And as a part of the scientific method in the biological sciences, and you're, again, speaking to someone who is a practicing scientist, you know, I work every day with data, pathway modeling, looking at clinical studies. I'm a big supporter of not only doing modeling, but also getting clinical data as a way to really uh, hone up mechanisms with what's taking place. And what we see here in the biological sciences is we want double-blind studies, and we're supposed to use a saline placebo. Okay, that's the gold standards. But when it comes to vaccines, there's new, no real studies. At best, it's comparative and after the fact, we call post hoc. That's what we actually see here. And I challenge anyone to show me anything that's significant, and I'm open to ha having a discussion on this. In fact, one of the comparative studies that I was able to find among the few, it was vaccinated versus non-vaccinated in the Journal of Allergy and Clinical Immunology, done in April uh, 2005. And this was looking at uh, 5,015 people who were never vaccinated, 423 people partially vaccinated, 239 people were completely vaccinated. And then they looked um, uh, at you know, their reported levels of atopic illness, which includes eczema, hay fever, wheeze, and asthma. And clearly the vaccinated people, as you can imagine in this case, um, uh, had the highest amount. Next was the partially vaccinated and the completely vaccinated children had the, um, uh, I'm sorry, the, the completely vaccinated had the highest amount, the partially vaccinated were the second, and the never vaccinated had the lowest amount. So think about this. Again, it's not a double-blind placebo study, but this is the best we can get. And other people have said, oh, there are double-blind studies. And here was a study that came down looking at, um, you know, the influenza immunization looking at health workers before and after they got the, the uh, flu shot. 
And people always point to the study, oh, look, they did do a double-blind study. Uh, but when you actually read this, when you actually go, because people are assuming no one's going to take time reading it, when you actually read it, you find out the reality was the vaccine was ineffective. And I quote, it says, the vaccine failed to affect the total number of days the vaccinees, which means people who got it, suffered from the respiratory infections. So the reality is they did a study, but it turned out that the vaccine had minimal effect of any reason it kept some people that decided not to show up for work for whatever reason they you know it could have happened with drinking a cup of oranges but this is a quality of studies um, that we don't have and when you get as you take as you go layer after layer into this what you find is something even more fascinating that the the pro vaccine group who claims um that they are for science says that we cannot do double blind saline placebo studies because of ethics. And let me read to you uh, the argument. Um, it says they know firsthand what vaccines can do for a population and how now more than ever vaccines are safe. They also know that a randomized clinical trial for vaccines that we know work would not be ethical if it used a saline placebo that would leave a child susceptible to a deadly disease. This is why we don't see such studies today like we did in the 1950s and 60s. In fact, in the 1950s and 60s, there weren't really um, any real double-blind studies that went any long-term, if you actually go even study that. And if you go deeper into this, if you read the actual position here, and this I'm quoting from this, the ethics argument says, if there is already known vaccine that is safe and effective, which is saying, if there is an already known safe and vaccine that is effective, it is unethical to randomize children into an unvaccinated group because we would be denying them the benefits of being vaccinated. Now, just look at this, what this is saying. If there is an already known vaccine that is safe and effective, well, how did they figure out that it was safe and effective? Well, they never tested it. So this is like the chicken and egg problem. Um, and what this is, you know, that's it's a chicken and egg argument. Now, if I were to use this chicken and egg argument, then... Uh, which I'm not saying we should, you know, I'm very interested in traditional systems of medicine, then those same people should be fine with applying that. I'm going to just reuse their statement and substitute certain words here. It says, if there's already a known herb that is safe and effective, it is unethical to randomize people into a group not receiving the herb because we would be denying them the benefits of the herb. So think about that. You know, this would be being saying to the same time, look, I have thousand year of evidence that turmeric lowers liver cancer, so it's safe and effective. Therefore, you know, it would be wrong to do a randomized study because I should not be giving, having one group get turmeric and the other not get turmeric. It's completely absurd. Um, and in fact, um, this is what it would be if you took yoga. If I were to say if there's already a known yoga posture that is safe and effective, it is unethical to randomize people into a yoga group not receiving the yoga posture because we would be denying them the benefits of the yoga posture. Or in the case of chiropractic, if I said, if there's already a known chiropractic manipulation that is safe and effective, it is unethical to randomize people into a group not receiving the chiropractic manipulation because we would be denying them the benefits of the chiropractic manipulation. This is the point. They apply the scientific method to herbs, to traditional methods, alternative therapy, but they really don't want to apply to vaccines. It's a completely nonsensical argument because science demands the scientific method, whether it be a drug, an herb, a yoga posture, and I'm all for this. We should be doing double-blind 
placebo studies or chiropractic manipulation and vaccines. You cannot apply the scientific method when it's convenient for you because you want to put high strictures on drugs and herbs and yoga, but not when it comes to vaccines. And this is precisely what's taking place. I would say this is, with all due respect, voodoo, because as, as they say, if there is already a known vaccine that is safe and effective, yet they have no discussion of how they decided that vaccine is safe and effective because no studies were done. And so when you really look at this, you have to say, what? How was it proven to be safe and effective? Well, the reality was that it was not proven. And so if vaccines, per their current standard, are proven to be safe as effect and effective, then all other modalities practiced for over a thousand years are also safe and effective and do not need double-blind placebo-controlled studies, as that would be unethical. Sorry about that cutoff there. I hope you get the point. Their entire ethical thing is completely, uh, as we say, a neo-colonialist model. It makes you really wonder, am I supposed to stand up straight, you know, the, um, the, the Gunga Din, and listen to my master and say, yes, I must agree with you because you say that we should not be doing a double-blind study here, but when it comes to herbs and yoga, you're demanding I do it. It's a very neo-colonialist model. I can't say anything else. The entire uh, uh, basis here makes absolutely no scientific sense. So the realities are actually many outstanding scientific questions. Are they safe? Have the vaccines been evaluated in different age groups? Do the vaccine materials, which are called adjuvants, such as mercury, benzene, these aren't just taking the pus from someone else and putting in like a variolation. They have refined this to very interesting what are called dead materials, and they add a lot of stuff to it, benzene and mercury and toluene. Uh, do they go into the brain, the lymph and the liver? Do these adjuvants go intracellular and destroy mitochondria? And the question is, is there enough information to warrant their use? And are the adverse outcomes greater than the actual disease process? More specifically, are the long-term adverse effects of vaccines greater than the adverse effect of the diseases? These are fundamental questions that need to be answered. We don't have the science behind this and the science that they're using is frankly unscientific because if they want to use that voodoo science, that's what we have the current situation, it's not based on the scientific method. And if they want to do it, then let's apply that same science to everything. Um, you have physicians in this system, by the way, who cannot disagree um, to this. The physicians um, cannot disagree without being ostracized and loss of their career, their medical license. The legislators, many of them who have no science degree, simply parrot the erroneous arguments of the lobbyists representing big pharma and big medicine. By the way, I work with big pharma and big medicine. They know me, you know, and they know what they're doing. And the parents are fighting and seeing adverse effects and the physicians are not listening. And finally, the media, like Lemmings, as usual, is just following um, the, the lobbyists. Um, the other interesting thing to see is that the quote-unquote rational voices that you see, actually irrational, are voices like this skeptical raptor. The guy has no PhD, no real major research training, and he writes blogs out there when people question the fact that there is no double-blind studies. You know, uh, and by the way, this guy says there are double-blind studies. You actually go look at the studies he's putting out there, which are things like this, which I've gone through through um, closely. Uh, up here, let me go back to this, and you can go through it. Uh, none of them are really double-blind studies, placebo studies. They're testing one group of 
vaccines against another. So either he is irrational or dedicated to confusing people because he thinks no one's going to go read his stuff. And when you look at this, when you question him, just like in the area of climate change, unfortunately, people are called climate deniers like Holocaust deniers. He calls people Nazis for questioning this. This is the low level quality of discourse. And all of this is based on fear, uncertainty and doubt. That's what it is. Just like that witch doctor who was in my village who got chased out before my grandmother came, who offered a system. It's really scaring people. It's fear, fear, uncertainty and doubt. By the way, this way, this is how IBM used to sell its equipment because they said, we're IBM, we're big blue, trust us, we're always there. But, you know, those other guys can screw you over. But it's this, it's this, it's, it's not based on a healthy method of the scientific method. And what we're really looking at Stepping back, all of this is fueled by what I call the non-systems-based approach of reduction is fueled by blind men who are incented to look at the parts. So in any problem today, the real issue that we we're having at a very fundamental level is that science is not taking a systems approach, which is where we should be going, which is where we want to go. But the old guard in science wants to take any problem, for example, genetic engineering or climate change or vaccines, and reduce it to looking at a small piece of the tail of the elephant and then writing about that and ignoring the whole elephant. That's what's going on. That is a non-systems-based approach. It's an unscientific approach. It's behind the times. And, and we call that the blind man. Now, I'll give you a case in point. You know, what's fascinating is, if you look at this, is that, you know, when the Monsanto-Bayer merger took place, um, what's fascinating to understand is that in this case, the commonality is that Monsanto and Bayer, in a very profound way, if you go, look, Monsanto promotes the climate change narrative. Now, this is a longer discussion, but they promote a reductionist approach to taking the entire climate and reducing it to one variable called carbon. That's like the blind man looking at one piece CO2, ignoring any of the other things that go on in the universe, um, but saying we need to lower CO2 right? And that's going to solve everything. And, but Monsanto profits off climate change. It's a great thing for them. They promote climate change. Yet Monsanto is a company who is known for polluting and dirtying our waters, our food, and our air. Yet they want to promote the climate change narrative. So it's, it's very fascinating to watch because they want, uh, they're, they're reductionists. And what's also interesting to see here is, um, is that you take something like um, uh, uh, Bill Nye, who also is paid by Monsanto, uh, and he's also a big proponent of genetic engineering. I've done quite a bit of research in this field. We've published multiple papers showing, again, a reductionist approach saying, oh, if you just change one little gene, it's not going to have any effect, right? Very similar to the vaccine. All I'm doing is injecting this thing. Don't worry, it doesn't have much effect but they're putting other adjuvants into it. It's a systems problem. So here you have the same company which loves climate change, also promoting that GMOs are safe and using Bill Nye as their front end to do this. By, by the way, guy doesn't know a lot of science uh, and he's promoted as a science guy. And same thing here, you have uh, Bayer partnering with uh, BioNTech to develop mRNA vaccines. Um, so you have the same conglomerate, uh, Bayer Monsanto, which is involved in a reductionist approach to climate change, a reductionist approach uh, to genetic engineering, and a reductionist approach to vaccines. The good news is that I have a lot of respect. And, and again, um, 
you know, this is me trying to be uh, as as fair as I can, you know, in this discourse. Um, the uh, Institute of Medicine, the IOM and the National Academy of Medicines, uh, in 2011, they finally did a pretty good retrospective study and it was about the adverse effects of vaccines. So what I appreciate about them is at least it's heading in the direction of recognizing that there are issues and you'll see what I mean. So here, the IOM study said that there's evidence favors rejection of causal relationships. So they're saying, hey, there isn't a causal relation with the vaccine and autism, vaccine and diabetes, uh, DTaP and type one diabetes, et cetera. And you can read this. So they're saying, hey, we went through these papers. We don't see the causal relationship again. However, they are acknowledging that there are causal relationships, for example, between HPV vaccine and anaphylaxis and MMR and joint uh, temporary joint pain and uh, vaccine and uh, arthroglia, et cetera. So the good news is there is a recognition, hey, this is not like everything is fine. And more importantly, what I want you to point, to point to is their uh, final conclusion says, however, there's much to learn about the immune system, autoimmunity, and the effects of genetic variation, all of which may influence how people respond to vaccines. This is really, really powerful because it's saying that they're acknowledging there's much to learn about the immune system, which means there's a lot we don't know, autoimmunity, and the effects of genetic variation, which means personalized, predictive, uh, personalized uh, precision medicine, that we may, uh, uh, you know, react differently. So a, a baby, uh, if in its first uh, two to 18, you know, or a child is getting 70 vaccines, we don't know the genetic background of that baby versus another baby. Does it make sense? And we need to explore this. Now, you know, as I mentioned, a lot of the work I've been doing you know, is to reduce risk. The technology, as I mentioned, Cytosol, is really about testing compounds in silico. So those people who say, oh, there's an ethical issue here, we can't test on humans, we have to, the voodoo science, let's say, assume the ethical questions, we can't be giving some people vaccines and others, we'd be denying them. Well, you can use technologies like Cytosol. Again, this is not an ad for Cytosol. This is what I do. Um, but maybe there are other approaches. But I do know that our technology is helping major pharma companies major people who do formulations understand combinations on the computer and by the way to reiterate this is what we do when we build airplanes we don't simply throw a pilot in the airplane we do all sorts of testing using the computer because we want to make sure that we reduce risk that's what this is fundamentally about this is about reducing risk knowing risk so in closing what i want to say is we need to have a discourse and that discourse needs to be based on the scientific method let's do real science Let's recognize that the world is moving towards the modern area of biotechnology, personalized and precision medicines. And we need to calculate risk based on these modern technologies. The same approaches we take to building airplanes before we go kill pilots is the same methodologies that are now here that we can start to assess risk models for combinations of vaccines. We need to make research transparent. We recognize because of what's going on with the military industrial academic complex, that we cannot really trust academia to get our money and hold on to research data. We need transparent research. When they get our money and they're starting to research, that data needs to be made public so we as citizen scientists can also look at their data. And fundamentally, going back to John Kennedy's issue, we need to recognize that we need disinterested and objective third parties. And the final point here is to really make 
this clear. You know, when we really look at health, when we fundamentally look at health, you know, like my grandmother in that small village, health emerged from the patient-doctor relationship. It was not one person in the caste system telling someone else what to do. It was from respect, freedom, choice, and wisdom between those two parties' relationship. And the question right now before us, as we really look at this, is we don't, because there are not enough risk assessment models, and the good news is we're in a framework of precision and personalized medicine. That's the future. So we should be applying those approaches, those technologies, to really go into 21st century science, applying the model of everyone should get these whole array of vaccines and shut up and you listen to me and the state enforcing this, this does not sound like science. This sounds like a, a methodology of control of people and not respecting how health actually emerges. So anyway, I hope this has been helpful. Uh, this is Dr. Shiva Ayadure. I'll be talking about this more. I look forward to your feedback. Again, I encourage anyone, um, you know, to start looking, stop looking at this as anti-vax or anti-vax and vax or left and right. This is really an issue of do we want to do risk assessment? Do we want to do science? Do we want to make the scientists accountable to us? Do we want to have real medicine? And while we're figuring this out, we must recognize that the patient-doctor relationship is what needs to be supported. Patient and doctor, parent who's taking care of their child. And in that, in that you know, ecosystem is where health really emerges and technologies need to be supportive of that. Joining us now to set the record straight is presidential historian, author of the fabulous book, so many of them, Reagan Rising and Citizen Newt, Craig Shirley, along with Elizabeth Warren's conservative challengers. Now, 